Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is Gideon, they said to him, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So we're continuing our way through the book of Judges. This is our third week talking about Gideon. We're going to finish up the end of Gideon's life here, and we're going to get into the life of Abimelech, his son, who is sometimes called the anti-judge of the book of Judges. He is the, the middle of the chiasm, if you want to count it that way. But he's also really, he doesn't quite fit in with the rest of this group. And you'll see why that is tonight. Uh, but his story is still important in the book itself. But we're in the middle of something here. We're in the middle of a battle as Gideon and his 300 men are driving out the Midianites. And the last thing they did is they called the tribe of Ephraim to block the fords so that they couldn't get across the river. And they killed the two princes of Midian, Zeeb and Oreb. And now we see that Ephraim is kind of offended by this. And this is politics, pure and simple, man. This is, well, why didn't you call us? You know, Ephraim was the biggest tribe, most powerful tribe in the north at this time. And they say, you didn't call us. We would have fought with you, which is interesting because he did muster 32,000 troops before this. So you wonder where they were, but uh, he flatters them. <laughs> he says, well, look, you guys caught the two princes. And isn't that, even, even the small things you do are better than the big things we do. And they bought that. So we might not feel too good about Gideon for flattering these people, but what does it say about them that they fell for that flattery? Uh, so they, they are, okay, okay, I guess you're right. That was a pretty special thing we got to do. And, you know, this is the kind of thing you read about, like, the end of World War II. Like, the Allies were not worried about winning anymore. They were squabbling over who got to take what. You know, who got to be the one to march into Berlin first? Who got to be the one that, that did this? And that's kind of where they are in this story. But uh, what you can see here is the very beginnings of this next section, which is that there's trouble brewing in Israel. You're starting to see the tribes fracture and start to be opposed to one another instead of working together. And this is a small matter, but they're only going to get more intense. Because while Gideon started well, as I've said, this is a downward spiral in the book of Judges. He is a lesser man, certainly, than Othniel was, who was the, the paradigmatic judge for the book of Judges. But even then Barak, who Barak also was hesitant like Gideon was. And he also wanted to let the, the women lead rather than himself. But Gideon is going to end very poorly. Things are going to take a dark turn. You're not going to see God intervening in this story until the end when things are really bad. And as much dialogue as Gideon has had with the Lord, he seems to have an attitude of, I can take it from here now. And that's not going to end well. So let's look at verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well, then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. 
Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Yogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure, like last time. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Haris, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. I want to underline that. It's going to be significant in a moment. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Yether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So this is how the battle ends here. He pursues Midian and he passes by two different cities, Sukkoth and Penuel, neither of which agrees to feed and, and give water to his troops. So Gideon says, when I come back, I'm going to deal with you. And he, he did that. Uh, he destroys the army, the Midianites, with his 300 men. And when he comes back, he says, here they are. What do you have to say now? And they take the leaders of Sukkot, and it says he taught them a lesson with thorns. So it seems they fashioned whips of some kind with thorns on the edge of them and flailed them, whipped them, so that their, the flesh would have been torn off their backs and their buttocks and the backs of their legs. Uh, not exactly a nice thing to do. But then also Penuel, he comes to their tower and he smashes the tower down and it says he killed the people. Most people uh, who study this believe that he killed the leaders, similar to how he killed the, or punished the leaders of Sukkot. But he's, he's taking out his revenge and the war is over. So then he takes these two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he's inquiring after his brothers. This would seem to be his actual blood brothers here, not like my brothers in Israel, but the actual brothers of his family who had been killed. And they try to flatter him. They're like, oh, yes, we remember them. They were just like, like the son of a king. Remember, Gideon was not a king. Gideon was the lowest man in the lowest clan of Israel, remember. But he says, those are my brothers. And if you had left them alive, I would have left you alive. But since you didn't, he asks his son to kill them, which seems to be hesitation again on Gideon's part. That's certainly how the kings interpret it. Although there is something culturally that asking your son to be the one to kill the two kings would have been a mark of honor. As in, you get to be the ones that put an end to this once and for all. But his son is a young man and gets a little nervous and gets scared. And it might be that Gideon himself didn't want to do this in front of everybody. But you can see how Zeba and Zalmunna mock him and they say, if you're, if you're really a man, let's see how strong you are. Let's see if you're able to actually shed blood. You're too scared to do it. And Gideon steps up and he does it because I would imagine his timidity was something of a sore spot with him. Now you see this and we can look at this in a positive sense. And in one sense, we really should. That the men of Sukkot and Penuel refused to come to the aid of the children of Israel. 
And the Lord had said that this was a capital crime. Remember, he talked to those that lived on the other side of the Jordan. So that deserved to happen. But we cannot get away from the fact that Gideon is acting in a rather brutal manner here. And it seems that he's not so much fighting for the Lord now as much as exacting personal vengeance on these people. And, and it certainly reads like a grudge that he's carrying out. And there are some that would say, no, Gideon did the right thing. And as I said, broadly, he did. But perhaps the manner in which he did it, kind of like Ehud. Remember how Ehud assassinated King Eglon? And we're like, should he? I mean, Eglon needed to die, but like that, it's a similar thing that you see throughout the book of Judges where the methods are maybe not wicked, but they're questionable. Like, is that really how we want to do this? Are you really going to let yourself be baited by these men? Are we really going to go through this whole song and dance? Like the Lord told you to go wipe them out. So this is, uh, this is the introduction of, of questionable methods into Gideon's life. And what we're going to see next is no question about it was certainly a mistake. So let's keep reading. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So you see, again, they're asking him to be king like the man had just said. You're like the son of a king when we look at you. You're so princely. You're so presidential, Gideon. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Instead of being king, every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now, Midian was not a descendant of Ishmael, but it seems that the Ishmaelites were either part of the coalition or that there was a loose term understood that these were Ishmaelites. But, you know, those were the other, other child of Abram. It's interesting to note that the nation that would give rise to Islam is already using crescent ornaments at this time. And that's something that I think is significant to talk about another day. But verse 25, and they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw into the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it which is like a garment that would be worn by the priest, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Yerubaal, remember that's the other name for Gideon, the son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, like, just to clarify, not adopted. His own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech, which means my father the king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Yerubaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So they beg Gideon to be king. But he responds rightly. No, no, no. I'm not supposed to take the glory for this victory. Remember, that's the whole reason for the 300 soldiers. God gets the victory. God is your king. So no, I will not be your king. So far, so good. But then he says, but I will, you know, if you really want to do something nice for me, you could give me all the gold that you got. 
They said, hey, no problem, here you go. And this is very reminiscent of Exodus 32, when Aaron told the people, break off the earrings that are in your ears and, and put them together, and he made the golden calf. Remember that? And that also became an object of harlotry for the children of Israel, spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution. He fashions a golden ephod. Now that is a transliter transliterated word from the Hebrew, ephod, which means the garment that the priest would wear. It was the thing that was put on after uh, his undergarment in order to minister. So it was a, a religious garment. And he makes it out of gold, and he says he sets it up in Ophrah. So th this is debated because it doesn't say, so we have our ideas about it, theories. Uh, was this worn by the priest that ministered at Ophrah? Like, was this something that was worn? Was this something that was just set up, you know, like a, like a clothing on a mannequin at uh, the store? Or was there an idol that was constructed? And then the ephod was put on top of the idol. Maybe it was even an image of Gideon himself, perhaps. It was a kind of a monument in this golden ephod. But in any case, it became an object of worship. Ostensibly, it was a memorial to the victory that God and Gideon had won, but it became an object of worship, much like the bronze serpent that God used to save the people in the, in the wilderness became an object of worship later on and had to be destroyed. Gideon was not an idolater, but he's living like an idolater. Just like Gideon was not a king, but he was living like a king. One of those king in everything but name. He has a harem that would produce 70 sons for him. Now, I don't know how many per wife he had, but he would have had to have quite a few. 70 children, which that's what kings did at this time. It's also what the Old Testament law had warned kings not to do, is to multiply wives to themselves. He also has this concubine, which is a woman that he did not marry, but he was still having sexual relations with. Why would they have concubines instead of just marrying them? Usually because they would have been a, of a lower status, of a lower caste, if you want to use the, the Indian term, although this doesn't quite apply. But it's later on, gonna, she's going to be called his slave girl or his, his female servant. So this is somebody in his house that he took a liking to, and she became his, his kind of, again, like a wife in all but name. So it was a semi-official status to have, and she had this son, Abimelech. Abimelech. So he has 71 sons, 70 legitimate, and then one bastard son. Now here's the deal. The Bible overall looks favorably upon Gideon. You see uh, Hebrews chapter 11, he's right there in the hall of faith. And it says right there, the Lord blessed him with children. The Lord blessed him with a, a ripe old age and with a name that stands to this day because he did well for the Lord. Even if his, some of his methods were not what we would hope they would be, he still delivered Israel. He was a judge for Israel and he won peace for 40 years. But you cannot deny that Gideon did not finish well. He didn't start well, <laughs> but he got better. And then at the end, he, he seemed to forget that humility that he had before the Lord and instead to think rather, rather fine of himself. And this is going to leave the door open for great iniquity. It's going to lead the way to a lot of trouble because it teases us in verse 35 by saying they did not love the Lord. They began to serve the Baal Berith is what it said. Baal Berith in Hebrew means Lord of the Covenant. So you can see the mockery there. They abandoned their God and his covenant, Jehovah Berith, the Lord of the Covenant, and they began to serve the Baal that had something to do with the covenant. Maybe they thought they were getting away with something here, but they didn't. The Lord compares them to spiritual prostitutes or spiritual adulterers. And in verse 35, it says they didn't show love to the family of Gideon either. 
which we read about in chapter 9. Let's keep going. Now, Avimelech, Abimelech, the son of Yerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Yerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. You know, it seems like handing over pieces of silver is never a good idea in the Bible, is it? There are probably exceptions to that rule, but it always makes my antenna go up. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers the sons of Yerubbaal, 70 men on one stone, likely knelt them down and either beheaded them or bashed their skull in. But Jotham, the youngest son of Yerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem, which was a historic place where Abraham had first met with the Lord. So we now transition from Gideon to, as we call him, the anti-judge, Abimelech. He's not going to be called of the Lord, and he's not going to be commended for anything. But he was a prominent ruler during this time. Again, this was the illegitimate bastard son of Gideon from Shechem. That's where his mother was from. So he was raised at Ophrah in their house. But of course, as an illegitimate son, he would not have been counted with the rest. He would not have received an inheritance or any of the prominence that came with it. So he goes back home to Shechem. He was an ambitious man. And Abimelech rallies the people there to support him as king over the 70 sons of Gideon, which is commendable for them because you can see that none of them had de or, uh, decided to call themselves king either. They were seemingly ruling as a, as a platoon or as a, a council, maybe. But using the silver from the false temple, he hires thugs to assassinate his brothers and set him up as king. He hires worthless men. You know, we, we, you know what a worthless man is. A kind of guy to do anything for a buck. He hires these people to come and kill his own family. So you can see how Gideon didn't want to be an idolater, but he left the door open for idolatry, and that's exactly what happened. In the same way, he did not choose to be king, but he acted in such a way that left the door open that his children would desire that for themselves. This is the lesson we're going to draw from this passage tonight. The lines that one generation refuses to cross will usually be violated by the next generation. This is a principle that plays out in many different respects. It can be seen positively. I'll give you an example. Our founding fathers believed very strongly in personal liberty, but there are certain things that they left undone. They, for example, they didn't really establish a democracy of, of everybody. That was left to the generation of Andrew Jackson and others to bring that about. They also did not put an end to slavery, but there were many others that came along and said, hold on a minute, if we believe in this personal liberty thing, how are we gonna get away with this? There's a positive example. But let's look at this spiritually, and let's look at this negatively. If you are going to set trends in your life and in your family, or if a nation will set certain trends of departure from the faith, and then draw a line and say this far but no farther, you better believe that the next generation is going to continue along that trajectory and cause you to be appalled later on. Gideon acted like a king, but refused the title. However, he had a son named Abimelech, my father the king. I'm sure he loved that. 
Oh, please, I'm no king. I'm just God's chosen messenger. That's all that I am. You can call it whatever you want. It was the same thing with your 70 sons. wonder if he was taking extra wives to try to hit that magic number 70. Probably was, because it was a mark of prominence. He worshiped the Lord, but he allowed idolatry to take place. Probably excusing it. Well, they're not worshiping it. They're, just, they're venerating it. We still make that mistake, don't we? The Catholic and Orthodox churches, they still do that. Well, we're not worshiping it. We're just setting up an image of it and then bowing down before it and lighting candles to it. Hello? Is that exactly the thing the Lord told us not to do? He didn't just say don't worship any graven image. He said don't make any graven images because I know what you're like and I know what you're going to do. So in the same way, Abimelech, who is a, a, seemed to be of a stronger character than his father was, says, well, this is how far dad went. I'm going all the way. Dad didn't want to be king. I'll be king. Dad didn't want to serve the Lord fully. I'm not going to serve the Lord at all. And you can see how he is living out his, his ambition with the worst parts of his father's example. Just as his father questionably executed all the people of his own country from these cities, He's going to do the same thing. He's going to turn the sword against his own kinsmen as well in a far worse fashion. But he had set the trajectory. You know, you, you get a train going. It takes a second for the train to stop, doesn't it? You can't wait. This is something you learn in driver's ed even. Don't wait until you're ready to stop. To stop, you've got to slow down ahead of time. So when you leave it going, inertia will carry you over. And this is something that has taken place in our own society and all over the world throughout history hypocrisy and reluctant obedience speak louder to your children than the formal lessons you teach them. You tell them, hey, we go to church, we love Jesus, we believe the Bible. And yet every time you get up to go to church, you're griping and complaining about it. You get, you get in the car and you're making fun of the lessons and the pastors. You don't spend any time with Christians outside of church, and if you do, you're rolling your eyes about it, and you're all kind of together in pushing the envelope. You say you believe everything the Bible says, but you'll allow certain things to come into your home, maybe the language you use or the entertainment that you permit. And your children hear that and see that. And they ask you about certain things like the virgin birth, maybe, or about creation. And you say things like, look, kid, if there's a lot of stuff in there you might not get. I don't really believe this part myself, just whatever. That kid's going to learn that. And they're going to grow up and they're going to say, then what are we doing wasting our time? Mom and dad hate going to church. I'm not going. Meanwhile, you as a parent are now in your 40s and 50s, and you're finally feeling convicted about these things and starting to take your own mortality seriously. So you're trying to get more involved, but your kids want nothing to do with it. And you say, why, why, why? Could it be that you set the example for them that this is not that important? Do not be deceived, Paul wrote. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The prophet said, if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. You look at our own country and some of the things that are happening now that people are so rightly appalled by astonished that we could ever go so far. How could we ever allow sexual depravity to get to this point? I'll tell you exactly how. Because previous generations got away from what Scripture said, but drew arbitrary lines around where they would not go. But because the lesson was, do whatever feels good, as long as there's consent, the next generation said, well, I consent to all sorts of stuff, and I don't believe the Bible standard, because that's not the standard you followed. 
People thought that we can have free love and free sex, but couples are going to stay together and raise children. We thought we can allow fornication. We can allow, you can sleep whatever you want before marriage, but homosexuality, we draw the line. People come in and say, well, what makes this okay, but not this okay? Well, the Bible says, I don't believe the Bible, and neither do you, apparently, because you're allowing this. We're worried about declining birth rates, but we've been slowly winking at cohabitation in the church for generations. Now, all of a sudden, we've, we, in the last generation, they kind of say, you know, homosexuality, don't preach about it, don't push it. Yeah, it's wrong, but, you know, really, it's, it's really okay. Well, then the next generation comes in and says, hey, transgenderism. Oh, no, you can't do that. Spare me your outrage. You've been letting this go the whole time. I asked once... Uh, some of y'all might know Dr. Ed Heinsen, who is a, a great prophecy teacher and Old Testament scholar at Liberty University. I knew his granddaughter reasonably well, and uh, so I would often go to him at, at Liberty. And I remember he gave a great speech to the seminary one time. And the great speech was all about, we are not going to go the way of Harvard and Princeton. We're not going to go the way of Wheaton and all these other schools. We're going to stand firm on the Word of God. Awesome. But I went up to him and I said, how are you going to do that? Just all honestly, I wasn't trying to be a punk. I could do that sometimes. I wasn't this time. I said, how are you going to do that? Because, I mean, as I said before, Harvard started out with Jonathan Edwards. It's kind of hard to start with a bigger rock star than that, right? He says, I'll tell you why. He says, because I know exactly how those other schools went down. He said, you have somebody that believed in the Lord, who brings somebody in, who believes the Lord, yet is kind of open to these other ideas. Now this guy's kind of open, becomes the new head. So he's kind of open to certain ideas. So he might believe somebody in who believes that idea, but is still very respectful of the scriptures. Now this guy's in charge, who believes weird ideas, who brings in somebody who's a little more assertive in those ideas. And the chain goes and goes and goes and goes. And he said, we're not doing that. I'm not going to let that happen. It's got to start now. You don't compromise. Well, that's what's happened in so many places. Liberty is still holding strong, I'm glad to say. But I remember having a conversation. I'm like, you know you got some guys here that are, are pretty weak on some of these gender issues, don't you? He goes, yes, I am aware. Which I don't know how that, where that went, but he was aware. But the doctrines that America has allowed in the various you know, churches at large, do we really need to believe in the virgin birth? Do we really need to believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Does the resurrection have to be literal? Can't we just say that the Bible is infallible? Do we have to say that it's inerrant? Do we really need to preach on sin? Do we really need to preach on blood? generation of students raised up in youth groups that were explicitly not going to teach the Bible as that generation went off to school and deconstructed their faith. And everyone's shocked. Why are you shocked? You, it's exactly what you should have expected. You didn't take the Bible seriously, so they went off to college and they found somebody that believed something else very seriously. And they were drawn to it. And they, they throw it back in your face. We messed around with atheism culturally. Let's build a secular society. Let's build a society that, that not only doesn't give religious preference, but no religion at all. Just kind of get prayer out of school. Let's get this, the name of God out of the laws. Let's change all these things here. And, and then what happens? We've got a generation that doesn't believe in God and won't believe in God. And now you see these, these old men that are scrambling. Going, no, 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 no. We, we need religion. We need it. And it's like, yeah, really? You've been acting for a century like we didn't. Materialism. How can people be so vapid and so selfish? How can they just not care about working hard and, and making something for themselves? How can they just be addicted to all these silly, frivolous things? Well, maybe that's how they were raised. Maybe you never said no to your children. Maybe you never allowed them to experience anything when they were young. And now they grow old and you're like, hey, it's 35, time to get out of the house. Why should they? You've, told, you've given them everything they ever wanted their whole life. They've never been told no. 
And now we've got a whole generation of spoiled rich kids. That used to be the joke that the lower class gave to the older class, that your kids are a bunch of losers. You don't know how to work hard like we do. Well, now we all have enough money to be considered that way, and all our kids are like that. What am I trying to say? None of this should be surprising to anybody. That's why everything is apostate and godless and selfish and depraved. Because we laid the traditions down earlier. Now be careful. This is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that previous generations of Christians or otherwise were thinking that they wanted to allow this eventually. I'm saying when you, when you no longer say, I stand alone on the word of God, I'm going to bring in some of this too. And you draw the line arbitrarily somewhere else. People will pick up on that, that this line is arbitrary. You just made that up. That's just what you were comfortable with. I'm comfortable way more than you are. You don't want to be king, dad? I'll be king. You're living like a king anyway, let's be honest. My father, the king. That name testifies to Gideon's true character. And perhaps we ought to take a hard look and realize that the current generation knows the name of the previous generations better than we do. Failure to honor God will undermine what comes after. And we will be appalled at what we see. And we should be. But let's not sit back and act like this came out of nowhere because it most certainly did not. Verse 7, when it was told to Jotham, remember the youngest son of Gideon who escaped, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. Do you remember when they stood on the two mountains and they called out the blessings and the curses of the law? Mount Gerizim was the mountain where they announced the blessings. And he said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees, you can tell a fable, parable here. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, the thorns, the weed, You come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. What shade? It's a bramble. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Yerubbaal and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved... For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone. Hear this with tears in his eyes, y'all. And I've made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Yerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Be'er and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So the youngest son of Gideon escapes and he proclaims this, what is effectively a prophecy from Mount Gerizim. And the story is the trees are looking for a leader and the obvious choices refuse. The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine, the useful trees. And they instead choose the bramble to be their king, the thorn bush. And it's, it's ridiculous to think of a tree being ruled over by a thorn bush. That's his point. His point is the best of men, Gideon and his sons, refused to leave their proper place. We don't need a king. What do you need me for? 
Just, I'm happy with the role God has given me. But the people instead chose a bad man like Abimelech. He says, and if you did the right thing, I hope it goes super well for you. But if you didn't, I hope that fire comes out from that bramble and consumes the both of you. God sends warnings. This is the thing to heed. God is not silent when things are going in the wrong direction. He sends warnings, of course, from Scripture. Read your Bible. Read the prophets every once in a while. Put put the fear of God in you a little bit. The Lord also sends prophets. They don't have writing prophets anymore, but there have always been those that God calls to speak up and speak to the culture, to speak God's word for the moment, what what it needs to be said right now. And also, the Lord sends warnings from the culture too. Sometimes we won't listen. God will raise up those that are not even part of the church to speak out on these things, to catch the church's attention. But as is always the pattern, few listen to God's warnings. Turn with me, if you will, to Amos chapter 4. I want to read some of these these, uh, prophetic passages tonight just to remind us of the kind of God we serve. But this one is a good one for you guys to bookmark and remember. This is the prophet Amos speaking to the children of Israel and about the judgment that's coming upon them. And, And they maybe were starting to worry to themselves like, well, God didn't tell us. He didn't warn us. Listen to what he says. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Famine. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field in which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water. It would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So famine, drought. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Crop failure. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Plague. I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Military loss, defeat and victory against your enemies. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I warned you five times, and you blew past the warning signs. Now it's time for me to deal with you. God expects us to take disaster and calamity as warnings of his displeasure. That's what Amos said. He said, I messed up your economy. I messed up your food supply. I sent plagues and pandemics, dare we say, among you. I caused you to be defeated and humiliated before your enemies. Yet you did not repent. Jesus himself, when he was asked about various disasters that had happened in Israel, he said, I'm not going to tell you what happened. They're not worse sinners than you. But if you don't repent, you likewise will perish. His point is you should take acts of God to be acts of God, friends. That if you are not walking in righteousness, it ought to scare you. So as we look at our own times and the various things that have come upon us, it ought to catch our attention. It ought to catch our attention 
That we have things like pandemics and rumors of wars all the time. It should catch our attention that natural disasters come in. And can I say that each one of these things was God's direct hand? All I can say is that the Bible says, if, I'm, if it gets your attention, good. And yet there has been no repentance. There's been an awful lot of talk. Been an awful lot of what's, who's doing what wrong and how to fix it and how to do it better next time. But here's the thing we need to understand. When you hear all the things I just laid out for you, do not think to blame somebody else. Oh, those millennials. Oh, those college kids. Oh, those elites. Oh, those globalists. Oh, those... That. We are all complicit. We did this. That is how a Christian repents. You don't use they language. You use we language. You don't come in like a Pharisee and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You come in like Daniel did and Nehemiah did and said, we have done this. To us belongs shame of face. We have all allowed this to happen. And there have been warnings. Here's something that I do not, I will not abide. I cannot stand it when people say things like, the church was silent during this time. We were not. We were not. There were people giving warnings out there. Warnings when Roe v. Wade was first instituted. Warnings when homosexuality began to gain traction. Warning after warning after warning. But what happened? They were shut down and they were called bigots and liars. Ken Ham coming in, warning about the effect evolutionary teaching was going to have on people. This guy's just an idiot and hates science. Well, everything he said was going to happen has happened, hasn't it? Many godly men. Adrian Rogers was warning us. Ken Ham was warning us. Bill Bright was warning us. James Dobson was warning us. Jerry Falwell was warning us. Chuck Smith was warning us. Billy Graham was warning us. Nobody listened, even in the church. You know how we know? Because they kept on doing the same old things. And we do not blame them for that. Their job was to give the message God gave them. And it's not to say that there was not fruit born from that ministry, because there was. But the reason I can say that we have not listened is because here we are. And the options that people are presenting to us, number one, let's try to roll the clock back. That's coming from the more liberal side of things that is spooked by how far it's gone and wants to take it back to where we were before. The other side is coming from those that are maybe of a more radical, perhaps even right-wing uh, position, saying, what we've got to do is establish a new order and establish a new system and a new country under the name of, of maybe even Jesus this time. But you know why neither one of those will work? Because neither one of them has anything to do with repentance. Neither one of them includes as part of their plan falling down in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord and saying, God, what have we done? Even those that want to talk about Christian government and all that. Nobody's talking about Jesus. No one's talking about the gospel. They're talking about a political institution with a cross on it. That can't help anybody either. We've had those before. Nazi Germany had one of those before. How did that work out for them? I'm not even saying I'm opposed to these solutions necessarily, but that neither one of them is going to help the hearts of men that have been corrupted by sin. Repentance. Turn from your wicked ways. If my people who are called by my name will what? Humble themselves. Not standing in arrogant finger pointing against everybody else. And what? Pray. Pray. How many thousand rallies do we have for every sincere prayer meeting? And turn from their wicked ways. Stop doing this stuff. 
Then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. If you've not been warned, I'm warning you now. Halfway religion does not please God. And if we reap the whirlwind, it's probably because we were sowing the wrong kind of seed back in the day. Verse 22. I think we have time to read this. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Notice it doesn't say that he judged Israel. He ruled Israel. That's why he's called the anti-judge sometimes. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abraham. Relationships that begin with lies usually don't last, do they? That the violence done to the 70 sons of Yerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in anguish or ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. So they're setting up uh, state-sponsored bandits to wreck Abimelech's kingdom. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. Which is a sin also. The Bible says, You shall not revile your rulers or speak evil of one of the kings. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Yerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. I'm not afraid of you. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. Three years Abimelech reigned, but you see, God intervenes. God sends an evil spirit. Now I say, wait a minute, is God the Lord of the demons? First of all, God will allow Satan to do things in many cases. But also that word evil in Hebrew can, doesn't always imply moral evil. It can even mean disastrous or calamitous spirit. But it's similar to 1 Kings 22 when uh, Micaiah reveals to uh, King Ahab that the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of his prophets. Meaning they were having their trances and their ecstasies, but it was a lying spirit from the Lord. So he stirs up trouble. The Lord does. Shechem begins to send bandits to harry the road, hurt the economy, make Abimelech look weak. And while he's out there dealing with it, this guy named Gaal comes in and throws this, this treasonous party in the temple to try and steal the crown. And Zebul sends out this warning. And uh, what do we see here? When the people of God turn away from him, people will, or God will intervene to establish his rule. God will not sit and take it. God is not mocked. You're not going to sit there and mock my rule like I'm not the king of the world. I will step in. God will very often allow an extended period of time for repentance. But don't, don't make any mistake. Just because God's wrath is slow doesn't mean that it is not furious when it comes. Revelation 2, remember this, right near the church in Thyatira, about this woman Jezebel that was teaching false doctrine and seducing all the men. He says, I gave her time to repent. Time to repent. That's what it is right now. 
But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. So even in the church age, this is an Old Testament theology now. The Lord says, I'm giving you space, but if you don't repent, judgment and calamity is coming. I don't know where we got the idea that God does not intervene in national affairs anymore. He totally does. And it might sound like a welcome thing. Oh, good, God, please intervene. And yes, we should hope for that. But remember, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. At home, in your own house, or at large in the nation. This can just as easily apply to your house, y'all. It doesn't have to be national. If you're setting trends in your family, your kids are going to pick them up. And if you really want to serve the Lord, he will intervene and calamity will come. Verse 34, So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, went out and stood on the entrance to the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and fled before him. He fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. So there seems to be a, a time gap here where a siege was likely laid against Shechem until eventually Zebul could drive the people out from the inside. Then on the following day, verse 42, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it and he razed the city and sowed it with salt like the Romans did to Carthage. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Berit. means God of the covenant, ironically. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Which would be a lot today, but in this time, with these populations, that is a catastrophic number of people who died. So Abimelech marches on to Shechem. Gaal is shamed into going out to fight him. They drive them back in. Zebul fights from the inside. And then when they come out, Abimelech blocks their entrance and they massacre the people. He sacks the city. He burns the citadel with a bunch of brushwood, just like Jotham had prophesied, isn't it? Fire is going to come out from that brushwood and it's going to burn you up. And it was fulfilled very literally. It probably did not expect that Abimelech would want to destroy even the fortress. Because if you're going to take your own city back, you're not going to destroy it. But Abimelech's a madman. He's a warlord. What do we learn from this part? Build your foundation on the sand, and when the storm comes, everything collapses. Matthew 7. 
Gideon did all right for himself, but he built a foundation of sand. And then when things really got going, everything collapsed. That's why it should not surprise us that the world is headed for catastrophe. You hear about it all the time. You don't even know what to believe anymore. Rumors of war, right? Because we bought the lie. We bought the lie of a society without God. We excised him from our culture, from our churches, and from our homes. As I often say, parroting Leonard Ravenhill here, everybody's all concerned about prayer in school. How many of those people come out to the prayer meeting their own church has? God's not going to honor that. So how is everything falling apart? Because we eroded the foundation. We allowed things to be given over to other than the Lord. Gideon built a shaky foundation. His son tested its strength with his wickedness, and God brought it all down. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. Now you know where the phrase, a mighty fortress is our God, and the righteous run into it. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Let's do this thing again. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. Well, we're saying it, pal. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Yerubbaal. So, why Thebes? He needs a new city. He just destroyed his last one to continue his conquest. But God has had enough. Remember, the prophecy was that he would consume them and that they would likewise consume him. And they storm the citadel again. They're getting ready to burn it. And a, a certain woman, we don't even know her name, threw a, an upper millstone. Now, you've probably seen the pictures of the big, large millstone that they would use to grind it. Probably not this. Think of the smaller stone that would have gone on the top. Still would have been heavy and not something you want to drop on your head from a tall distance. But he's underneath it, and she drops it, and it crushes his skull. And to avoid the shame of being killed by a woman, he has his armor bearer kill him, which is very much what Samuel, uh, Saul will do in 2 Samuel chapter 1, when he doesn't want to be killed by the Philistines, so he wants his armor bearer to kill him after he fails to commit suicide himself. You also can see here, this is very similar to the story of Sisera and Jael, where the woman drove the tent peg into Sisera's head. You are supposed to be picking up on the fact here that the men of Israel are being shamed in their warfare. That the women are taking on more and more aggressive roles, which will culminate, of course, in Delilah, who will be the worst of the worst, as opposed to Aksa, the wife of Othniel that we read about at the beginning. And the land returns more or less to normal at this point. God had exercised his divine retribution on Abimelech, and uh, this sorry episode is over. What you've got to learn from this is that the kind of disaster that our nation faces, rampant sexual immorality, the economy, I don't know if anybody agrees that the economy is doing well, with the, the feelings of confusion and fear, and with the... the uh, the threats abroad and, and things getting worse and worse and we just had the pandemic and we see all these things, you must not come to the conclusion that these things are unprecedented because they are not. This kind of thing has happened over and over and over again and you've got a book in your lap that tells you why such things take place. 
You might say, well, we don't know for sure that all these things are happening because of our sin. You're right. I agree with you. However, when you do the same kinds of things that Israel did, and you're receiving the same kinds of disasters that Israel received, you should expect that there's a connection there. Compromise begets rebellion. The things that you would never do, your children and grandchildren will do, if you teach them that compromise with Jesus is okay. If you teach them that you don't have to take this seriously, guess what? They won't. And, and, and I, I think this is something that I see happening even in my own generation. I'm presuming this has happened before, because I don't think mine is unique. Where those that are having children are scared to death of taking that next step and becoming just mom and dad of entering that, that middle age as it's felt, even if they're not that old. And so what they do is they try to have a, a Christianity where they're serving the Lord, but there's all sorts of areas of compromise and, and you know, things maybe that are like Gideon. Maybe they're not wrong, but you just kind of look at it all as a piece and you go, are you sure about that? And later on, they're expecting to continue to serve the Lord, but I can't help but think that if this is the kind of household you're running, are your children really going to think that Jesus is the most important thing to you? Compromise begets rebellion, and rebellion leads to disaster. God must intervene. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. I was reading this passage in my devotions the other day, and it, it struck me like the word will do from time to time. And I'm going to read a, a longish section here to you, not too long, but the first six verses. Because I, as a, as a Bible student, am very sensitive to context, as we all should be. But what that can lead to is it can lead to this, this little dance you can do. You read about a judgment that God is pouring out upon Babylon, Tyre, whoever. And we say, well, that was for them. That doesn't apply to us. And in one very specific sense, you're right. We should see those things as applying to each one of us. Kind of as, as in, Tyre did these kinds of things, and here's what I did. The lesson from that is, don't do those kinds of things. Or God will do something like this. But Isaiah 24 broadens this out to include every nation. And I want you to hear Isaiah saying these words to his nation. You know, we don't really have a booming prophetic oratory in our country, kind of a result of microphones and the ability to have, uh, you know, audible projection, which is good. We need that. But just consider Isaiah saying this, just as we read this, thinking of the kinds of things that God does to wicked nations. He says in verse 1, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Friends, that's in your Bible. 
This is the Lord you serve. And this is not just Old Testament fury. Jesus said you will by no means take away one jot or tittle from that old covenant. He is the fulfillment of such things. He is the one who will execute such things. We read about it in the book of Revelation not long ago. All the world has been warned by God of His wrath against sin. And you cannot say to yourself, well, this is just for Israel. He says, all nations, their everlasting covenant was broken. What covenant was that? The one he made with Adam, the one he made with Noah. To steward the world according to God's word has been broken. Therefore, the world languishes under a curse. That's what our God says to us. My question to you then is knowing that, how can we, who call ourselves Christians, washed in the blood of Jesus, continue to indulge in the very sins that put Jesus on the cross. I'm asking you, not talking about them. What things do you allow into your life? The kind of thing that required Jesus to be flogged and beaten and mocked and nailed to the cross. And you say, well, Jesus will forgive me. Well, it's not that big a deal. Well, I won't go that far. You know what it is? Because we look at the world and we want it. We love the world. We love the things in the world. We love the way society goes. We don't want to be different. We resent Jesus for asking us to be different. And we want to find as close as we can possibly get to the line without crossing over into what's wrong. But that trajectory is what got us where we are. And I'm blessed and privileged to live in the South and live in a place where there is that still basic regard for, the, for God and the Bible and for righteousness. But if we continue doing the same thing, we're going to see the same things happen. New England used to be the center of American Christianity. That's where our revivalists came from. That's where our doctrine came from. And look at it now. Why? Because they were infatuated with the things of the world. They were infatuated with its philosophies, infatuated with its ideas and the, the way things were changing. And they went along with it. And if we do the same thing, we're going to be no different What is the solution? What do we do? Same thing. It's always been repentance. Repentance. Oh, revival. Yes. But what is revival preceded by? Repentance. What does revival precipitate? Repentance. The people of God throwing themselves before the Lord and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. How could I have done this to you, Jesus? We must be the ones to lead the way in this. The ones to warn them. Many of us in this room, including myself, have a voice in our community, in our city, even in our government, our schools, all manner of institutions and neighborhoods. Are you sounding the trumpet blast of repentance? Or are you trying to keep a lid on that because not everybody believes that? That's what got us in this mess, worrying about what other people think. What it really amounts to is we do not have faith that this is the solution. We have faith that we can fix it and Jesus will, won't care if he doesn't get the glory. Really? Even Gideon, with all his garbage, wouldn't call himself king because God deserves the glory. You build on a foundation of sand like Abimelech and it will all collapse when the pressure comes. Trust God 
And he'll exalt you like Gideon was exalted, even with all his garbage. God goes, Gideon's one of my guys. Are you sure about that, Lord? He goes, I'm absolutely sure about that. He made mistakes. Yeah, so do you. Many people, Christians now, saying things like, you know what, the old way of doing things is, is not working. I agree. But then this is where things deviate. They say, we've tried this Christian thing. We've tried love. We've tried grace. Now it's time for us to step up and fight. It's time for us to take back what rightfully belongs to us. To which I say, don't reject Christianity like it's been tried. Like you tried following Jesus. If you, if you can that easily, that casually, throw away things like love and grace, you never knew love and grace to begin with. You were seeds planted among thorns and among stones. And when the heat came, or when the cares of the world came, you were choked out and lost. I'm, sorry, I'm so worried, you guys, that we're going to correct the sin, but not change our hearts. Do you all know that people are reviving paganism? Paganism. They want to go back and worship the old gods. And this is not a joke. This is not something that is mainstream, but your kids probably know about it, especially your sons. And especially, well, I was going to say especially if they're white, but it's not even that too. There are a lot of black folks going towards those old Egyptian gods. We're going to worship those. Worship cats. We're going to worship dogs. We're going to go back and worship Thor. We're going we're to drink the meat and we're going to allow ourselves to be possessed by these gods. That's what people are saying. They, why? Because they say, well, Christianity can't help all this garbage. Never mind the fact that when our culture was serving Jesus, they conquered the world. So who's the real warrior God, I might add? But the idea that we've somehow tried this and failed. No, we've tried that soft, weak, milk-toast, seeker-friendly, liberal Christianity. And that's the same thing that's being peddled now as a solution, by the way. When you see all these guys on TV, whether it's Dennis Prager or Jordan Peterson or whoever these guys are, it's this soft liberal garbage that led to all this. Well, let's rock the clock back this far. No, because that led to this. It's going to be the same old thing. If you cannot come to me like a child, renounce everything you have, die on the cross, you will by no means be saved. That's our religion. And boy, that'll fire people up, let me tell you. Don't preach the weak stuff because you're a Christian and you're sick and tired of living righteous. Nobody wants that. Everybody else is radical. Stop trying to save your life or save your country through halfway measures. Everybody else is radical. If we're going to come in with a soft soap smile on our face and not insist on the gospel, no one's going to listen. Yeah. Folks have it right when they say we need to be radical Christians. But where they get it wrong is they're not talking about Christianity at all. Radical Christianity says, I'm going to live my life as a sacrifice to Jesus. My life is an offering to God. I no longer live. I don't care what happens to me. I've already been crucified with Christ. I don't do those things. Nobody's talking about righteous. no righteousness. Nobody's talking about grace. Nobody's talking about blood. Nobody's talking about the cross or the empty tomb. Then I don't want that because I'm not going to hitch my wagon to some other failed idea that's not going to lead me back to Christ. A life of living Christian martyrdom is the only thing that offers any hope for the salvation of the West, the United States, or any of the people who live there. And not just there, but for the whole world. To all men. To every soul. That every heart that beats on this earth. It's the gospel, friends.